Have you ever noticed that there's always something better? There's always something better. For those of you who are like me and enjoy the marvelous drink of Coca-Cola Zero, you realize recently that we've been duped. And there is in fact something better that Coca-Cola has been hiding from us. And now there's a newer, better tasting recipe. Now we can have our disagreements as to whether they're right or wrong, but the truth remains, there's always something better. And if you're an iPhone user, you realize that you can have your phone about six months before you realize that no, 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 there's a better phone out there and all you have to do is pay the $1,200 to upgrade again. There's always something better. It can be a better car, can be a better house, can be a better job, can be better dreams or aspirations, but it always seems like there's something better. And that's because these things that we have, these these things that we pursue are ultimately never intended to satisfy us. We can get the newest phone, we can get the newest car, we can get the newest recipe of whatever drink might be out there, but ultimately it leaves us desiring more. You see, the book of Matthew has been very similar to this. As we've been studying from chapter one, verse one, all the way now to chapter 21, we can see that Matthew's intent is to show us that there is something far greater than what the people have come to worship. He's been showing us that there is someone far greater than Moses. There is someone far greater than the religious leaders of the day. There's something far greater than the law, and it's been pointing to Emmanuel. God with us, Jesus, the Son of God. And this morning, we're gonna see something else that Jesus is better than in our text this morning. I'm so grateful for Courtney reading this passage, preparing our hearts for this. And we're gonna see that in Matthew 21, that Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater temple who is zealous for his name, and desires all people to come to him. So why don't you go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Hopefully you're already there. Uh, if you're not, go ahead and turn. We're gonna wrestle with that idea this morning, the fact that Jesus is the greater temple who is zealous for his name and desires all people to come to him. Matthew 21, I know Courtney read it for us earlier, but I'm gonna read it again because it's the very active living word of God. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17, Matthew says this, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This morning, as we wrestle with this idea as Jesus as the greater temple, we're going to see three actions in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. We're going to see three actions. And the first action is this, the pollution of the temple. The pollution of the temple. Last week, our brother Reuben preached on the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And though it was triumphant, it was humble at the same time. And according to Mark's account, Jesus and his disciples enter into Jerusalem. They stay a few hours, but then they leave and go to Bethany. And so here we are the next morning, Monday morning, Jesus and his disciples return to Jerusalem and make their way to the temple area. Now, when you first read this, you might think that Jesus is, is entering into the actual building of the temple, but that's not necessarily what's happening here. No, Jesus and his disciples enter an area known as the court of the Gentiles. And if you had this map of Herod's temple and, and what it looked like in that time, it's the outermost area of the court. The court of Gentiles is about 35 acres uh, in land. It's big open. I have no idea how big that is, but you that, that know what acreage is, that's awesome. Uh, 35 acres. Uh, it served as a place where non-Jews could come and pray to Yahweh. So it was called the court of Gentiles. However, the Gentiles were not really welcome there. Why weren't they welcome there? Well, instead, this court, this 35-acre court, was filled with merchants who sold animals for worshipers to bring us sacrifices and money changers. And as we learned last week, over 100,000 Jews were coming from all over to Jerusalem for this week. Could you imagine 100,000 people in this area with, with booths and tables and merchants and money changers exchanging foreign currency for temple currency so that animals could be bought for sacrifices and the temple tax could be paid? It's this crazy, loud, wild environment. Josephus, the famous first century Jewish historian, reports that 255,000 lambs were bought this week alone. 255,000 lambs. Now, for those of you who live in Irving, just imagine the South Irving Walmart on Black Friday is the sort of picture that you can think of this court of Gentiles filled with merchants and with money changers all trying to exchange money. Now, this wasn't the only issue, the fact that there was no place for the Gentiles to be able to come and to pray and to worship. 
No, it's the fact that also these money changers and merchants were committed to making money. You see, they charged an unusually high currency exchange rate, kind of like the airports, and the price for animals and other things were absolutely absurd. But guess what? These people had traveled miles and miles and miles to come and make sacrifices with animals that they hadn't brought. And so they had no other choice but to pay the price. Jesus does not mince his words here in Matthew 21. He condemns what's happening in the temple. He quotes two Old Testament passages that are juxtaposed, kind of contrasting what the real purpose of the temple was and what's actually happening. The first is Isaiah chapter 56. It'll be up on the screen for us. And God says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations. God, in this passage, speaks of how his temple is not the sole property of Israel. No, 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 no. I've given you the temple, the Lord says, for all people. It's supposed to be a witness to the nations. You see, the temple's purpose is to be a place for all nations to come and to be able to worship Yahweh. Because why? Because he is worthy. However, it's impossible to do so because of the marketplace that these merchants and these money changers have set up. Rather than being a house of prayer, Jesus calls this a den of robbers. And when he uses that phrase, den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter seven, which says this, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called on my name and say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, the temple was a den of robbers because it was a place for these thieves, these merchants, these money changers to be able to hoard and have a place for their ill-gotten wealth. You see, the, the people were more concerned about their purposes for the temple of God than God's purpose for the temple. They wanted to make a profit more than they wanted to see the nations come to worship their God, Yahweh. Their selfish motives blinded them from seeing how they were neglecting the very heart of God. You might be thinking, boy, I am glad I'm nothing like those people. Yet Matthew always wants to remind us that we are far more like these people than we might think. So let me ask you a question. Are you more concerned about your good or God's glory? Are you more concerned about your preferences than God's purposes? 
Are you more concerned about getting yours rather than God getting his? Do you care more about your own comfort than the cost of reaching the nations? You see, it it doesn't take you very long to be at First Irving to realize that we are a church that exists to make disciples both locally and globally for the glory of God. But are you committed to that? Are you committed to that locally and globally making disciples? You see, that includes making disciples in the community that God has placed First Irving. Praise the Lord that we've been on this block for 117 years, right here. And over 117 years, Irving has changed and changed and changed. But our desire is for First Irving to reflect Irving. Are you committed to that? Or do you desire for you to be comfortable, for you to have your own preferences met, to have your own purposes met, than for us to be a church that's reaching the lost around us? You see, we we get a taste of this, of what it would be like for us to reach Irving whenever we do our bilingual services. And let me tell you, there is no better service that we offer. There's no thing I'm more excited about than whenever we get to gather together with our Spanish brothers and sisters and worship together. Yes, it's difficult because there's two languages, there's many different cultures, there's unique musical worship, but the nations are represented. And I love it. But how many of us view this service as an inconvenience? How many of us view this service as a hassle? Or we think, man, I can't wait till next week. Guys, I'm there with you. It's uncomfortable. It's us having to to learn how to get out of our preference of how long we want the service to be and and how we want the service to go and what we want in the service, but we're committed to reaching the nations, then, man, we have to get uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, I pray that it would be far from us as a body to be like these merchants, to be like these money changers who are committed to themselves above all else. May we be a people who are committed to God's heart to reach the nations at all costs. You see, walking into the temple, Jesus understood just how polluted the temple had become. And so he commits to doing something about it. The first action we see is the pollution of the temple. The second we see is the purification of the temple. What does Jesus do? Does he mourn? Does he treat this as a teaching moment? I can't help but think of the crowd during this. The crowd who just yesterday welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and thinking about what they wanted Jesus to do, thinking about what Jesus coming into Jerusalem meant for them, for their people. You see, Just yesterday, they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. They were worshiping the one who had come to save them. But the question is, what did Jesus come to save them from? You see, the popular Jewish mindset 
of the time hoped that the Messiah would come to cleanse the temple of all Gentiles. Get these people out of here so it can be just us. And praise God, Jesus has come to do it. It's just gonna be us. Isn't this gonna be great? Jesus' attitude and actions were exactly the reverse. The very thing they wanted him to do, he did the exact opposite. You see, he cleanses the temple by driving out the merchants and the money changers. And this might not sound like a big deal, but imagine 35 acres of land, hundreds and hundreds of merchants, hundreds and hundreds of money changers and booths and tables, and Jesus gets to work. One man drives out all of these people. Could you imagine this man who taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. The one who came in riding a donkey yesterday is now enraged with righteous anger at what he has seen in the temple. Jesus is embodying exactly what David wrote in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has consumed me. The goal of Jesus' actions is to restore the temple to its proper function, to serve as a house of prayer for all nations. But as is always happening in the book of Matthew, there is something far greater happening under the surface. There's something far greater that Matthew is pointing us to. There's something far greater that he wants us to see about Jesus. Now remember, all of this letter, ever since Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, has been revealing Jesus as the Son of God. And here's another moment where Matthew's going to draw from several different Old Testament passages in order to highlight the significance of what Jesus is doing. Don't miss this. Most biblical scholars believe that this is the most clear demonstration of Jesus as Messiah throughout the book of Matthew. It's one of the most significant messianic displays in this book. Why? In the book of Malachi, God promises that he will visit his temple one day. And this visit would not be a cordial visit, but this visit would be one that brought judgment and purification. Listen to what God says in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." This was no prophet who rode in on a donkey to drive out money changers and merchants. No, brothers and sisters, this was God incarnate, cleansing and doing exactly what he promised to do in Malachi 
3. And because the temple has now been cleansed, because the temple has now been cleared, there's room for the Gentiles to enter. There's room for the blind and the lame and the paralyzed and the sick and the hurting and the lost to enter into the court. And they did just that. And that's what we see in verse 14. But here's the catch. According to Leviticus 21 and 2 Samuel 5, the blind and lame were restricted from entering the temple complex. So how is this happening? How is this okay? They were considered unclean due to their ailments, but Jesus welcomes them. And not only does he welcome them, but he heals them. Why? How can he do that? Because Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is God incarnate. He cannot be contaminated by their ailments. He cannot be made unclean because of them. And not only that, but all he comes in contact with becomes clean. So Jesus cleansed the temple, got rid of the den of robbers so that those who were sick, those that were hurting, those who were paralyzed, those who were needy could come to him and be made whole. You can almost hear the echo of Jesus' words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. So we see Malachi 3. We see another demonstration of Jesus as Messiah by his healing of the blind and the lame. We see another little nugget that Matthew drops for us in verse 15. He says that the scribes and chief priests saw the wonderful things. The wonderful things. And this is not Matthew being sarcastic. This is Matthew reaching back to the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the same term used here by Matthew, the only place it's used in all of the New Testament, is the same term used in Exodus chapter 3. And if you know your book of Exodus well, that's awesome. But if you don't, I'll get us to where we are in Exodus 3. That's, Exodus 3 is where Moses encounters God at the burning bush. And God declares to Moses a message in verses 19 and 20. And he says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. See, this term in Matthew 21, 15 is the same term used in Exodus 3, 20. It's the same term used to describe what Yahweh did before the nation of Egypt. You see, these awe-inspiring, miraculous acts are a clear allusion to Yahweh confirming Jesus as the Messiah. But not only are Jesus' actions messianic in nature, Listen to what is being proclaimed 
in verse 15. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, Corey, but the crowds proclaimed the same thing last week, and that wasn't necessarily a good thing. But see the difference in this passage versus last week's passage. It's not the crowd saying it this time. It's the children. And for those of you who have been following along in the book of, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 19 makes it clear that it's the children who will inherit the kingdom of God. So what Matthew's doing here is he's making the shift from using crowds to using children so that it's another affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. How? The posture of humility required to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be like a child. Therefore, this is not a fatal misunderstanding like Reuben talked about last week. No, these children had a genuine, authentic understanding that Jesus was the Son of God. And this was the Messiah who was cleansing the temple before their very eyes. Like we've seen throughout Matthew, this caused the religious leaders to confront Jesus they say right there in verse 16, being indignant. Do you hear what they, these are saying? Basically, they're, they're asking, do you, Jesus, do you understand who they claim that you are? Do you grasp what these little kids are saying about you? Because, I, Jesus, I don't think you do. Jesus being fully aware of this moment, saw no need to rebuke or correct the children. He only saw fit to confirm their cries by quoting Psalm 8, as we read earlier this morning in our call to worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, he only quotes verse 2 of Psalm chapter 8, but by quoting verse 2, it's assumed that he is the identity in verse 1. Jesus is applying to himself a passage of Scripture applicable only to Yahweh. Here's the really neat thing that I want us to pick up on this morning. Jesus is no longer concealing his identity. He's not about that anymore. He's not about that, hey, you've been healed, now go and tell no one. No, just as Reuben said last week in chapter 21, verse 3, where Jesus addresses himself as Lord for the very first time in the book of Matthew. No, Jesus is explicitly claiming himself to be the Son of God. It's like him saying this, I am who they say that I am. And I'm here to do exactly what I said I would do. Have you not read about me? Religious leaders, have you not read about what I've come to do? See what I am doing. This is why in Mark's account, the religious leaders were seeking how to destroy Jesus after this. 
See, with just a cursory reading, it's like, oh yeah, Jesus said something about babies and infants. What's the big deal here? But no, Jesus was confirming himself to be Yahweh, the Messiah who has come. Some of you might be asking the question in your head, why does this matter? Like, why does it matter that Jesus is the Messiah who is now cleansing the temple? What does that have any relevance to, to me today as I'm listening here in, in 2021 at First Irving? Don't miss this. It's only the one who is greater than the temple who can cleanse the temple. It's only the one who is greater than the temple who can cleanse the temple. And here's the neat thing. This temple cleansing was just a shadow of the things that were to come a couple days later. Jesus, throughout the entire book of Matthew, has been subtly taking the place of the temple throughout his ministry. He announces the forgiveness of sins. He heals the sick. He is the very presence of God in the world. Jesus cleanses the temple on this Monday morning, but he closes it on Friday afternoon. On the cross, Jesus' physical body is destroyed. He's left lifeless. But it's in this act that the temple itself is symbolically destroyed. Listen to Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see, through Jesus' sacrificial death, the earthly temple completely crumbles to the ground. And it's replaced by the one who said of himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And it's in this passage where Jesus says, I am he. I am he. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus' death and resurrection instituted a new temple. And this temple is not a building, but it's a people. It's through Jesus that we have been purified to be a dwelling place. Just like Jesus purified the temple on this Monday morning, we are a people who have been purified in order to have a dwelling place. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And here's the good news this morning. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to enter a temple building. No, when we gather on Sunday morning, Jesus is with us. But don't miss this. Just like the old temple had a purpose, we have a purpose as a new temple. God intends this Sunday gathering, each Sunday gathering where we as a people come and gather together to be a witness to the nations. The way that we sing, the way that we 
preach, the way that we encourage and pray together, the way that we observe the ordinances together is intended to be a light unto the nations. You see, we proclaim the gospel in our gathering, but we also display a gospel people that should draw the nations to God. Are we committed to that? May we be a church that's committed to doing everything for the glory of God. We've talked about the pollution of the temple. We've just talked about the purification of the temple. But here's where the good news gets great. We see in this a shadow of the perfection of the temple. In the very first chapter of Matthew, Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And for 33 years, God incarnate dwelt with his people on this earth. And just days later from this account, God incarnate would be crucified. He would die, he would be buried, but three days later, his body would resurrect from the dead. And now Jesus dwells in bodily form at the right hand of the Father. But one day, Jesus will return for his church. One day, God the Father will send God the Son for God's people. And he will return not as a suffering servant or a meek carpenter, but as the King of Kings, victorious. And sin and death will be no more, and God can once and for all dwell with his people forevermore. And what the children declared in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, Hosanna, son of David, will be declared throughout all eternity. Not just the saints of first serving, but people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation will cry out, Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, eternally, to him who sits on the throne And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Christian, this is your glorious hope. We can have joy in our perseverance because of what we know is coming. And to this we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus So how should we respond to this passage? How should we respond to the words in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17? There are many responses, but because I am Baptist, I've kept it to three. The first is this, come. I am fully aware that even in this gathering of God's people, there are some among us who are not God's people. And so to the non-Christian in the room this morning, I want you, I want to invite you to respond to the gospel for the first time this morning. And the response for you is simple. 
come and see. Come and see. You see, I believe that the, through the preaching of God's word, the spirit of God awakens spiritual hearts. And I believe that anyone who wants Jesus can have him. Anyone who wants Jesus can have him. And so this morning, you might be under the Spirit's conviction and wondering what you must do to be saved. Let me tell you, Acts 4 says that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. And there is no other name by which you must be saved. If this is you today, I pray that you would repent of your sin and that you would place your faith in Jesus and believe that he is your salvation. In just a moment, as we respond by song, we're going to have several pastors here in the front row. If this is you, I'll encourage you to come down and to be able to talk to them. To those who are in Christ, you have two choices of response. Number one, you can repent. To those of us who are in Christ, maybe you've fallen into the trap of pursuing your own preferences over God's purposes. Do you have a desire for first Irving to be a light among the nations? Do you have a desire for first Irving to reflect the community in which she is in? If not, I'm calling you to ask the Lord to give you this heart and mind for those who are different from you. And for you, this is the perfect opportunity to examine your heart and to ask the Lord to reveal the ways in which you are working against him. Lastly, we can rejoice. To the weary, the broken, the disheartened, the hurting, those that would classify themselves as this this morning, these brothers and sisters who are heavy laden, I want to offer you the hope of the gospel that's found in this passage and is a relief to your troubled soul. You can rejoice this morning because Jesus is with you. You can rejoice this morning because the one who died for your sins to make a way for you to come to him is still with you. And praise the Lord, his presence is far greater than any earthly temple. In Jesus alone can you find rest, in Jesus alone can you find peace, and in Jesus alone can you find hope. And so brothers and sisters, come to him this morning. Rejoice in the hope that you have in him. And take heart for our King Jesus is coming again and we will dwell with him in his presence forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning praising you for what you've done through your son Jesus that through him and him alone, we can dwell with you in your house forever. And so, Lord, for those who are in this room, 
who are your enemies, who are not among your people. Lord, I pray that through your spirit you would bring them from death to life, that you would call them to yourself, and that we will be with them in your house forevermore. God, I pray for those of us who are in Christ. God, would you reveal in our hearts and our minds how we are in some ways working against your purposes, whether it be our preferences or our desires, Father. Would you help us to see your heart for the nations? And lastly, remind us all the hope of your son Jesus who is to come to usher in the kingdom once and for all and that we can dwell with you forevermore. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this promise. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.